someday in heaven, we're all going to know each other. And so I've met two people today that I had never met before. And and just in heaven, we're going to see people that we've never met. There's going to be people coming up to you and thanking you because you helped support the missionary that served where they are, and they got saved through that missionary's ministry. And I think in heaven, God will let us know how all those things work. And I'm going to find my old Sunday school teachers and thank them for um, enjoying the privilege of having me in their class <laughs> and, and let them know that I got saved. And they'll be thrilled to see me there because some of them went to be with the Lord before I got saved. And, you know, God is an awesome God, and He's God of all people and all time. God doesn't see the world the way we see the world. God sees all the people of the world as people needing a Savior, and and He draws them to Himself, and many come to know Him. Uh, But God works in, in people's lives, sometimes in a very, very special way. And I remember when I first got serious about following the Lord, I made a commitment that I was going to dedicate my life to the Lord, and my pastor asked me if I wanted to rededicate my life. I said, no, I didn't do it the first time. I, I was happy to not go to hell, but I didn't really dedicate my life to the Lord. So I dedicated my life to the Lord, and then I was starting to get serious about following the Lord and started reading the Bible, and and I remember sitting in church and seeing this beautiful young lady, and I thought, she would be a person who'd walk the Lord with you. And I asked her out, and she said yes, and I never let her go. And, you know, we get to serve the Lord together. That's, that's a blessing. And uh, we have friends here, and we serve the Lord. But, but there's people that you're going to be friends with for all eternity that you haven't even met. And we're going to rejoice, and we're going to all stand around and sing praise to God together. One of the cool things to me have been the old people who've had an influence in my life. A lot of you remember Fred St. John. Why were we looking at pictures? I don't remember, but Megan and I were looking at pictures, and there's Fred St. John. And it was pictures of when we visited him in Indiana, because after his wife Naomi passed away, he moved back there, and we would go see him anytime we were near the state of Indiana, because my brother lived there, and my grandpa lived there, and Fred lived there. And now Grandpa and Fred live in heaven. And, uh, you know, sometimes we forget that some people have a shorter life, and yet it's not less spiritually significant. The, The measure of your life is not how long you live, but how well you live. And so today we're starting a series of messages looking at individuals who were involved in the process of the Christmas story. Uh, tonight we'll look at, uh, um, <laughs> so my brain started to say Evelyn because there's a couple of them in here, uh, Elizabeth, and we'll look at Elizabeth and how uh, she was a recipient of God's great mercy, overwhelmed by the mercy of God. And, and we'll look at that and sing about that tonight, but then Uh, This morning, we're looking at John the Baptist, at the life and ministry of John the Baptist. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, and then John chapter 1, and then Matthew, uh, several different chapters. But we're going to start out in Luke chapter 1, at the life and ministry of John the Baptist. And later on, um, closer to 1130, I guess, we're, we're going to look at four principles that we learn from John. But we're going to look at a lot of Scripture today, different passages of Scripture. We're not going to read every verse that's applicable to the life of John, because some of them between Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke and John, they're, they're repeated. So we're going to look only at one verse and one idea, even though it's repeated in the three Gospels. But the life and ministry of John the Baptist, what was John's official title? It wasn't John the Baptist. We call him John the Baptist because he was the one who baptized people, and his name was John. Uh, but what was his official title? Well, yeah. 
the baptizer is what he did, but he had an assignment from God, an, an official assignment from God. The forerunner. What is a forerunner? In, in our days, you know, it's, it's a Toyota, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but, but in those days, they would have a forerunner, one who would come ahead. And so in our culture, we call it the advance team. And so if President Trump were coming to Casa Grande, long before he came to Casa Grande, there would be an advance team who would come here and probably rule it out immediately because there's no venue big enough for him, right? Uh, but, but they would have an advance team. So we'll say it's Phoenix because he's been there. So they have an advance team that comes in, and the advance team does several things. They focus on the venue, they focus on the circumstances of everything, and they focus on the security. And if the advance team is not satisfied with those areas, they postpone or cancel or restructure the visit. And so the forerunner is the advance team. He's the one who is going to come before the Messiah and announce to Israel, the Messiah is here. On the front of your bulletin, uh, there's a verse. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Um, this is what John's job was. He was assigned this task by God to be the forerunner, the one who would come before the Messiah and announce that the Messiah is here so that people would really pay attention. Unfortunately, many of them didn't. They ignored the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who did were so blessed by the ministry of John. John's one of those rare individuals in the history of the world where before he was conceived, the parents were told that you were going to have a baby and it was going to be a boy and you're going to name him a certain name. Uh, Jesus had that. Mary and Joseph found out before he was born, and they were assigned the name Jesus to give him. And John, John's parents found that out. Uh, and I think it's fun, um, some, some families have gender reveal parties where they announce the, the baby is going to be a boy or the baby is going to be a girl, and uh, we never did that sort of thing back in our day, but, uh, you know, now that, that's a fun thing that some people do, and, and our family's done that, and then you have to vote whether it's going to be a boy or a girl, and then they reveal it and let you know whether you were right. And so I always sit, whatever Kathy decides, if she says girl, I'll say boy so that we can get it right. <laughs> so we've always been right. So John, his birth is going to be announced, and, and from the point where his birth is announced to the point where he's born is at least nine and a half months, because his dad, Zacharias, was a priest who was serving as a Jewish priest that's different than the priest in our culture today. Uh, and, and he was a Jewish priest serving in the temple, and he would go and he would serve for a month. And during the course of that month, they would have a drawing, and the priest who won the drawing would be the one who would get to go into the holy place and offer the special offering in the Holy of Holies. And so Zacharias was the one whose name was chosen, and this would be the only time in his life that he would have this opportunity. So in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. Uh, the priests were all descendants of Aaron, who was the first high priest. And so they were of the tribe of Levi, and they were all descendants of Aaron, and, and they were serving as priests. And he was of the division of Abijah, so they had different divisions and they would rotate in, and they would serve, and then they would go back home. So during the time that he was serving as priest, he didn't go back home to where his wife lived. He was away from her for a time. And now 
Uh, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So both he and his wife were descendants of the priestly line. And they were both righteous before God. Wow, that's really something. If God was evaluating your life, would God say righteous before me? He should. Would he? Only you and he know the truth of that. Okay, and, and God said they were both righteous before God. God had revealed this, the, the word of God being written, this portion, through Luke. And so they were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, how many of you parents could say that your kids are always walking in the commands and ordinances and they're blameless? God could say that about Elizabeth and about Zacharias. They were good people. They were godly people. Verse 7, but they had no child. Now, again, this is a cultural thing. In our culture, not having a child is disappointing, right? I've known some folks who would love to have kids, and, and they don't. And, uh, and, and, and it's disappointing, but it's not devastating. But in their culture, a woman who couldn't have a child was looked down on. In their culture, she was like lesser. You, you had to get married and you had to have kids. In our culture, you can be a godly woman and not be married and not have kids. And you can still be a godly woman serving God and making a difference. And, and in our culture, we're a little more understanding of that. But in their culture, the, the family was just vital. And if you couldn't have kids, then, then your life was frustrated. And so Elizabeth had this this frustration, but she didn't just have the internal frustration of wanting to have a child and not being able to have a child. She had the cultural frustration because people would look down on her because how did God in his word describes them as righteous and obedient and blameless, and yet in their culture, people would look at her and think, she must not have obeyed God. I wonder what she did for God to bring this in her life. It's a different culture. I'm glad. Some, some ways our culture's better, right? And, and some ways not so good. But uh, they had no child, back in verse 7, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Now, when we say well advanced in years, you're probably thinking, you know, old, gray hair, using a walker, or something like that. Um, in their culture, people didn't live as long as they do in our culture. In fact, uh, Gary Burnett is in his 80s, and when he was born, the life expectancy of men was in their late 60s. So he's already outlived the life expectancy when he was born. Um, and today, a man born, the life expectancy is 80s, to live into your 80s, in America anyway. And some parts of the world, it's not so good. But in their culture, the life expectancy, uh, old men tended to be in their 60s, and, and the priests served until they were 50. And at 50, the priests would retire from service. So Zacharias is probably toward the end of his priesthood. So he is, he is, how, does, how is it described here? Uh, they were well advanced in years. He's probably in his late 40s. Okay, I'm looking around the room. I see a few people who have exceeded their late 40s <laughs> substantially. In fact, I'm, I'm still in my 50s for four more months. <laughs> it's getting close there, right? So when we think of old, but, but look at the health problems that we experience in our late 60s and 70s, and that's the life that Zacharias and Elizabeth had. They had those health problems sooner. They didn't have supplements. They didn't have things that could help make life a little bit easier. They didn't have painkillers. They didn't have canes and walkers and wheelchairs. They had to be 
carried around if they couldn't walk. So they were well advanced in years. So here's this old guy, and he's serving in the temple, but he has a dream. He has a dream in his heart. And verse 8, so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. What a special opportunity for him. Maybe other times his job was to, you know, cut the animals and, and drain the blood and prepare the sacrifice. But this time he gets to do the incense. And in verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. What an understatement. <laughs> he's in there. He's burning the incense. There's an angel. Ah! I mean, it, it shook him up. He was rattled by this. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Now, right there, he probably got more afraid. Because not only was the angel there, he called him by name. The angel was there for him. Maybe he thought it was the death angel. You know, they, they didn't know. They hadn't seen angels. It's not like this, oh, hey, it's another angel. Who, which one are you? This was an unusual experience, an amazing experience. And he said, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, was Zacharias still every day praying for a son? Maybe. Maybe he gave up at 40. And now the angel's answering the prayer. See, see we want God to work by our timetable, don't we? And sometimes God answers the prayer so far after we prayed it that almost we've forgotten that we prayed it, and then God answers. I remember, um, oh shoot, the orphanage guy in England, George Mueller, thank you. George Mueller prayed for a friend of his to be saved. He prayed for that guy for 52 years, and George Mueller died. And then the guy got saved. And now they're in heaven together. Don't stop praying unless the Lord tells you to stop praying. Keep praying. Keep longing. Keep seeking Him. And maybe He will give you the answer of your heart as He did here for Zacharias. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, later on, as he's writing his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit, almost as if they're opposites. In fact, if, if you are a drinker, especially a heavy drinker, they are opposites. You have to choose to follow the Lord and not, uh, not be drunk with wine or with alcohol of, of any kind. That's, that's prohibited in the Scripture, especially for those who know the Lord. And he will turn many of, I'm sorry, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, we're not going to go on in this story. We're going to jump around a little bit because we're focusing on John the Baptist. Uh, next Sunday night, we'll focus on Zacharias and we'll look at this story a little more completely. But for us, the name John doesn't mean that big a deal. This morning before church, I stopped John Mollett and I said, how did your parents name you John? How did they choose that name? Were you named after an uncle? Well, he has a great uncle, John, but he doesn't know if he was named after that great uncle or not. Maybe his parents just liked the name John. You know, we have famous Johns like John F. Kennedy and John D. Rockefeller and John Mollett. Uh, and we have these famous Johns, but, but how did John get his name? Uh, in, in their culture, the name was really important. 
I guess my parents ran out of names when I was born because they let my older sister pick my name. And so I became Terry because my older sister picked that name. Yeehaw. It's okay. I love her. I've forgiven her. But, but listen, John's name was chosen by God. The angel of God said, you'll name him John. And so when he was born, they named him John. Why? Well, the name John, the Hebrew name John or Ioannis, uh, meant Jehovah or Yahweh is gracious or God has shown favor. So the name was significant and the name was designated by God. Now jump down to verse number 57. Uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse number 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. Yes. Verse 59. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. That's the tradition in their culture in their day. The father would name his oldest son after himself. And so Zacharias had a son. He would have been Zacharias. And if Zacharias II had had a son, he would have named him Zacharias. But in our culture, it's not that way. Um, some people do that. I had a friend who was the fourth. And I always thought, well, are you going to change your name when you're 18? Or are you going to stay with the fourth? And if you have a son, are you going to name him the fifth? He said, I kind of have to. Maybe he only had a girl and named her the fifth. I don't know. We lost touch. But uh, on the eighth day, they went to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. Now, his dad couldn't talk for a long time, and we'll get into that next Sunday evening. Uh, verse 63, so, well, verse 62, they made a sign to his father, what would he have him called? And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Um, it wasn't just choosing a name. It wasn't random name. They didn't survey their family and drop names in a jar and put, oh, he's going to be John. Uh, that's not how they, the name was assigned by God to tell them that God is gracious and God has shown favor. Now, jump over to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we're going to look at his commission. <clears throat> looking at the life and ministry of John the Baptist. In John chapter 1 and verse 6, John 1 verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now I want you to stop right there. Some of you are not men. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, so for you, you can say there was a woman sent from God. For the men, you could say there was a man sent from God. And guess what? You are sent from God to impact our culture, our community, for Christ. You don't have the same commission John had to herald the coming Messiah, but you have the same commission that Christ gave to his apostles to share Christ, to share the hope of Jesus Christ with the world. And we have that opportunity and that assignment. So, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, Jesus Christ, that it all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. Jump down to verse number 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, quoting from Isaiah, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So that was his commission to announce the Messiah. His commission to tell everyone the Messiah was coming. And jump down to verse number 29. Verse number 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. Talking about the eternality of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not the baby born in Bethlehem. Jesus was the Son of God in eternity past, speaking creation into existence, and then the incarnation to become a baby in Bethlehem. That's not where he started. That's where he came to save our souls. So John says, he was before me. And this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. So he's baptizing Jesus, and he testifies of Jesus as the Son of God. Jump down to verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then his disciples went and followed Jesus. He was directing them to follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul warned the church in Ephesus, the elders from the church in Ephesus, in the book of Acts. Paul's talking to them, and he's saying, some of you are going to desire disciples after yourselves and you're going to hurt the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of a disciple of Jesus is not to get followers for himself, but to get followers for Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. You're not supposed to follow any one man. And yet... If you watch preaching on television, if you read some guy's books, they will tell you they are the anointed of God and you need to follow them. John later in his epistle said, you don't need to follow any man. So, so here's the rule, okay? You follow Jesus. You learn from other people but you follow Jesus. Everyone I know who has told me I'm a follower of and name somebody other than Jesus, they stray away from the truth of God's word. They get so focused on this other person, they're only focusing on part of God's word instead of all of God's word. So make sure you're following Jesus. When you get to heaven, God's not going to be impressed if you say, well, I was a disciple of Terry Green. God might even say, so what? Are you a disciple of Jesus the Christ? That's what matters. And now turn to Matthew chapter 3, please. Matthew chapter 3. John was bold. Uh, John was, was up front with people, and he was very bold plain spoken and clear. And he was calling people to repentance. Repentance is, in the basic sense, it's a change of direction. Like you're going this way and, and you make a U-turn on the inside 
and you start going that way. But repentance is more than just a change of direction. It's a change from the wrong direction to the right direction. It's a change from following your own path to following the path of God. You are acknowledging your sin before God and you are turning away from it. That's repentance. And so in John, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wanted them to turn from their sin and trust the Lord. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair. How many of you prefer comfortable clothing? How many of you think comfortable clothing's no good? You want to wear really stuff, rough stuff that chafes your skin. That's what John wore. Camel's hair clothing was rough. That's what he wore. Did he do that as part of his asceticism to please God? No, he did that as a sign that he was not following the comforts of this world. He also had a peculiar diet. His food was locusts and wild honey. I could go with that wild honey, especially locally grown honey is good for allergies, and, and I put some in my tea, and, and uh, I, you know, you got to watch how much, because, well, I do, I'm diabetic, but... You have to watch how much honey you have, but it's good for you. And so the wild honey I could go for. How many of you, if we said, hey, you want to come over for dinner? We're having locusts. How many of you would find a reason not to come over? Yeah, yeah me too, in fact. I, I, sorry, honey, I, I have to go, uh, you know, counsel with Tim Martinez, and we're going to in and out But locusts and what? No, honestly, locusts are high protein. Uh, people on the mission field, kids who grow up on the mission field, they grow up eating bugs because that's what everybody does, and, and there's protein in it. And they fry them, uh, and they, they grill them, and, and they, they... You want me to go on? No. Oh, okay, all right. Well, we'll go back to the Scripture then. There was a missionary lady who gave Kathy and I a very vivid uh, commentary on what it was like. And Kathy was not, she got an upset stomach just listening to it, okay? Verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. The baptism didn't save them. They were repenting and confessing their sins. The baptism was a testimony of the confession of sin and the repentance and the change of life. Baptism meant I'm dying to the old way and I'm being raised to follow God. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, baptism also means I'm dying like Jesus died for me. I'm being raised from the water like Jesus was raised from the dead. And I'm going to live for God. Baptism in the Bible was always by immersion. You'll see some pictures of John the Baptist standing in the water. He's, he's in waist-deep water with Jesus. He has a little cup of water, and he's pouring it on Jesus' head. That's not how they did it. They went under the water. In fact, that's what the word baptize means to fully submerge. Um, and so it's immersion. That's how they did it in the Bible. That's how we do it here. So uh, John's baptizing. And then in verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Well, this was really nice. How'd you like to walk up to somebody and they call you a poisonous snake? Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. So he's calling people to repentance. He calls the, the political leaders, the religious leaders, he calls them to repentance. And he calls out the ungodly things. You know, I, we have some great politicians in our country 
some people who really love America and they've dedicated their life to serve, and and some of them are doing a great job. Some of them are not. Some of them are very self-indulgent. But the thing that bothers me the most about politics is the way the church deals with politics. There are Christian leaders who wholeheartedly endorse certain politicians. And yet those, some of those certain politicians have lifestyles that are contrary to Scripture. And so what the church leader should be doing is saying, he may be the best choice, but he also needs to correct this. Or she may be the best, but she also needs to deal with this. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can't wholly endorse anyone. We have to address the spiritual issues in their lives first. And John did that. He called them to repentance. And and we need to do that in our own lives especially, but in the lives of others. Now, in, in Matthew 4, it says that John had been put in prison. And in Matthew 9, G, John was teaching his disciples to fast. He taught them about spiritual disciplines. And so now we're going to jump to chapter 14. And this is the story of John's death. John taught people to repent. He taught them to develop spiritual disciplines, to follow God with their whole heart. He pointed to Jesus the Christ as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the one who would give his life to redeem us. In John, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 14, this is the death of John. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Herod had taken his brother's wife as his own and then lived with her outside of marriage. Verse 4, John had told him, it's not lawful for you to have her. John's a bold guy. John says to the king, this is not lawful. You need to repent. He said to the Pharisees and the scribes, those who were leaders in Israel, you need to repent. And so um, Herod, although he, verse 5, although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted John as a prophet. Herod was intrigued by John. He listened to John, and, and he put him in prison, and he thought about killing him, but, but he wasn't sure because John was such a popular person among the people. Verse 6, when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. This was a sensual type of dance, and then Herod was inappropriately pleased. Verse 7, Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. You have to be careful when you promise people things. You know, it bothers me if I watch a television show and the cop promises people they'll get the bad guys. Because there's a lot of crimes that do not get solved. When parents promise their kids, I'll be back, you can promise you'll do everything in your power to get back. But only God knows what the future holds. So uh, Herod promised this girl this thing, and then it got him in trouble. Verse 8, so she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. In fact, if you go to Google Images and you Google John the Baptist, you'll see pictures of platters with heads on them. Uh, among other images they have. I thought about, not really, but... uh, All right, verse 9. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, 
Then his disciples came and took away the body and burned, buried it and went and told Jesus. What, what a sick influence this mother had on her daughter. And this young girl, teenage girl, had to take this platter with the head on it to her mother. John died. Now, look what it says in verse, the last verse that we read there. Um, verse 12, the disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So Jesus was born six months after John. Uh, you'll see that as you read through uh, Luke chapter 1 and see the process of that. Jesus was born six months after John. And so John died before Jesus died. They both died very young. And, and so I want to look at some principles that we see in the life of John the Baptist. We've looked at some of the scriptures about him in Luke and in John and in Matthew. Now let's think about how we can sort this in ways that speak into our lives. Number one, John recognized Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. So, do you recognize Jesus as that? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus the Christ? See, Christ is not just his last name. Christ is a title. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah. So, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He is also the Son of God. There are so-called churches here in this town who are teaching that Jesus became the Son of God. He was God the Son in eternity past, and He became man. He wasn't a man who became God. He was a God who became man. Not just a God, the God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And He stepped into humanity to show us the way. So have you trusted Him as your Savior? Are you loving and serving Him? as John did. Second thing, John obeyed God's commission. He obeyed God's commission. He was that voice. If someone were writing a book about you, would they write that you obeyed the Word of God? That you obeyed the calling of God? I found something out uh, after I surrendered to become a pastor, and actually after I became a pastor, I talked with some other pastors, and most of the trouble caused in their churches were by guys who were ordained to the gospel ministry but didn't pastor. Some of them pastored for a very short time and then stopped because pastoring can be difficult. It can be emotionally demanding, and so they stopped. And some of them never became a pastor even though they felt God's calling in their life to do that. And, and so the seasoned pastors that I talked with said the most trouble they've ever had in their churches were by guys who were called to be a pastor but didn't actually obey that calling. Now, I know not everyone in this room is called to be a pastor, but you're called to something, right? You're called to serve God. You're called to minister for God. You're given the great commission to go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them. We all have a calling of God in our lives. We all have God speaking into our hearts and lives. And so are you being obedient to God's calling in your life? Hey, here's the third thing, and that is John taught people to follow Jesus and did not exalt himself. Uh, today, you, you can Google all kinds of names of people, and, and all the, man, what you need is my book. You got to buy my book for $19.95, only now it's probably $29.95, you know. You, you got to buy my video series that you need this. You need me to speak into your life. Now, should you listen to a pastor? Yes, if they're following the Word of God. You should make sure the message is consistent with the Word of God, and you should listen and you should learn from them. But guess what? If I died tomorrow, 
If I died this afternoon, Victory Baptist Church would be okay. You'd find a new pastor. I mean, there was a time when most of the people in this church never heard of my name. In fact, the only people who knew me before I came here were the previous pastor, Gene Schaefer, and his wife, Nancy, because their son, Tim, is married to Kathy's sister, Chris. So we knew each other from family things, and, and Gene knew me. I knew him when he was pastoring in Rio Rico, and he knew me when I was pastoring in Saurita, and then God moved us here, and, and he came here six years before me, and then we worked together for five years. But the only other people who knew me were Jim and Cloyce Ricosi knew me. Their son Philip could have known me, but he didn't remember me. All he remembers is my brother's truck. He was a young, young boy, and he remembers my brother's Dodge Power Wagon because it was a loud, noisy truck, and Philip liked that when he was a little boy. Jim, Jim Reeves knew me, but his wife Jerry didn't. Jim met me when he was taking young people to youth events, and sometimes I would be the speaker. And so I knew very few people here in this town, but God brought us here. And if God takes me away by calling me home, then God's going to bring somebody else here because God's work will go forward. But don't exalt yourself. Point people to Jesus. John said things like, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals. So that in our culture, I don't know, in your house, in our house, we go in and we take off our shoes. And, and you know, when I couldn't walk very well, I couldn't bend down to take off my shoes. And so I would walk in with my cane and I'd get in the house and I'd walk along to a wall and I'd prop myself up and I'd call Anna. <laughs> I'd pull up my pant legs and Anna would come and untie my shoes. And once they were untied, I could get them off before I walked on the carpet. And John said, I'm not worthy to undo his shoes. That's how low John saw himself and how high he saw Jesus. And then John said it another time when people said to him, John, your disciples are flocking to Jesus and they're leaving you. And John said, yes. And he said, he must increase and I must decrease. John pointed people to Jesus. He didn't want people to follow him and he didn't write books and he didn't speak on the speaker circuit. He just called people to repentance and to follow Jesus Christ. So if there is somebody who's kind of pushing you to follow them, don't do it. Follow Jesus. Now, kids, you do need to obey your parents, at least until you're 18 and living on your own. You have to obey your parents. And some of your, in fact, all the kids that are in here, I know your parents, and they love God, and they pray for you daily. And they're trying to guide you to follow God. You need to learn from them. And you learn from a lot of people. I could name dozens of individuals that have spoken to my life and helped me. Some of them men, some of them women. And God has used them to really help me. In fact, the person who's helped me the most spiritually is my wife. And, and God speaks into our lives and into our hearts. But we follow Jesus. Fourth thing, John died young, but he died faithful. He died young, but he died faithful. He died because he shared the truth of God's word to people who needed to hear it. What you're doing is called sin. It's wrong. It's against the laws of Israel. They didn't listen, and they were angry. But John was faithful. And the true measure of your life is not longevity. It's faithfulness to God and His Word. 
As I said earlier, it's not how long you live, but how well you live that brings blessing in your life and impacts others for Christ. John lived well. He died young. The oldest John could have been when he died was 30. 33, I'm sorry. That's the oldest he could have been when he died. He was probably 30 or 31 when he died. But he was faithful. Why does it seem more sad when somebody young dies? When they know God and they go to be in the presence of God, that's a victory. It feels more sad because they haven't had as much opportunity to live. But, you know, I've known people who were really faithful to God in their 30s and 40s and then strayed away in their 50s and kind of messed up their lives and their churches. Humanly speaking, it would have been better if they'd died young. It's not how long you live, it's how well you live. It's not how many people know you, it's how many people know Jesus because of you. Those are the things that matter. So we can learn from John. And in heaven we'll see John. We'll get to meet him. And you can finally ask him, what did locusts taste like? And he'll probably say, kind of like crispy chicken. I don't think we'll be eating locusts in heaven, though. That has nothing to do with the message we just went through. But I think in heaven we'll probably all be vegetarians because that was God's plan originally. And I don't think there'll be death in heaven, so... I think you'll enjoy grilled asparagus just as much as grilled steak in heaven. So. Although I really enjoyed grilled asparagus now. God's a good God. And He wants you to call people to repentance so they can know how good He is. And He wants you to live for Him so that He can bless and enrich your life and through you impact others. For him. Father, thank you for the example of John, and thank you for the opportunity we have to look at his life and read from Scripture. Thank you that you love us enough to die for us. Thank you that we can be saved, and we can be called, and we can serve, and we can minister. And I pray that, like John, we would be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.